Well, I'm, I'm going to make a promise. I don't think anyone's going to be bored tonight, all right? There's the passage we'll be looking at. So uh, it's very engaging. It's, um, it's confronting. It's challenging. We're actually going to tackle this uh, hard topic, actually, this uh, controversial topic of the way men and women relate, the way husbands and wives uh, relate in marriage, particularly. And it's controversial because, as you've just heard, you've just heard a reading that um, talks about a shape of that relationship that includes the word submission. And uh, it's one of those words that when you hear it, it's kind of like the S word and you kind of go, what? And it freaks people out uh, and, uh, and you're sure it can't, be, it can't be applicable, it must be just a cultural thing, it must be about the patriarchy. We're... And so it all kind of impacts us as we hear that language. And uh, tonight we're going to dive into it and dig into it. It's been some time since we've ever touched this topic. I think it's about at least three years since we've talked about this broad area, but many more years since we've actually tackled this particular aspect of it. And so it seemed on a long weekend a good time to hit it because if I cause any stress, you've got tomorrow off. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can just recover, you can relax and uh, catch your breath again. And uh, so I know, and I know too you've got time because no one's rushing out of here to do anything, are they? So uh, it's, a, it's a good opportunity to do it. And uh, so what we, I'll, I'll pray for us, it's going to be a, it is going to be a challenging time, there's lots of big things we need to talk about together, so let me pray for us. Father, we do ask please that you would bless our time, that you would cause this to be uh, really, really a great blessing, that your word might be to us a lamp for our feet, that we might know the way to live, to walk, and uh, help me speak what's true, help us please to have hearts that are ready to hear what you have to say, and we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, what I want to suggest is that um, the whole thing is tricky, talking about uh, men-women relationships, uh, whether there is a shape to it of headship, submission, that was certainly the language of the passage. Well, the whole thing is tricky because uh, we now live in a culture um, that has made it very difficult to consider these things. Uh, we have gone through a massive revolution, uh, the great sexual revolution. It's the uh, second sexual, great sexual revolution that history's ever had, but this last one's been massive, and that's shaped us very much, so that um, we find it difficult to hear this language, whereas in the previous generations, previous centuries, it, people never, it was not an issue of great concern at all. Um, also, I want to suggest there's another reason why we find it difficult, because when we hear the word, the word perhaps submission, headship, we have all kinds of misunderstandings about it. Our culture has caused us to be shaped to see those words in a certain way, in a certain direction. And there's been abuses around that language uh, that we've been aware of. And so all of that together makes it difficult to come to this topic with a clear and clean mind and understand these things properly. So I want us to dive down and, and uh, uh, understand... I'm going to do a few things. I want us to understand the culture we're in. I'm going to give us some uh, thoughts about the culture we're living in. I want to then talk about how the Bible has been misunderstood. Then I'm going to come back to culture, back to the Bible, and then I'm going to run out of here as quickly as possible. <laughs> and then we'll actually have time for questions. So uh, at the end of tonight, at the end of church, uh, I'll be around, and if you want to come down and just uh, chat about some questions, we'll throw some things around as well, uh, because it may well raise some stuff. Let me start with culture. Why, why is this reading so controversy, controversial? Um, it's because we have lived through the second greatest sexual revolution in history, the 1960s, the last 70 years. And the aim of that revolution, if you've not thought and reflected on it, one of the big aims of that revolution was freedom. It was the idea of being freed from everything that restricted, constrained, oppressed, 
controlled. Uh, all of those things, uh, history has oppressed particularly women. Religions have oppressed women. Um, traditions, taboos, uh, men have restricted women. And you'll, you'll be aware of many stories about um, the woman who wanted to be the scientist but couldn't because there were prejudices and stereotypes that wouldn't allow her to, um, the kind of glass ceiling that stopped women emerging and, uh, and so on. And so the fight has been to free women to be whatever they want to be, whoever they want to be. If they want to be the rocket science, be, to be able to be free to be that. If they want to be the mum with kids at home, be that. If they want to be, even today, the porn star, if they want to be in that, but, but freedom has been the great thing. And liberating us sexually too, so that the taboos around extramarital sex, um, uh, sex with boyfriend, girlfriend, that these kind of taboos might be gone and men and women can enjoy what really has just become in our day and age a leisure activity, uh, an expression of um, just affection for one another. And the great uh, revolution, the great sexual revolution has been all about producing a freedom to do what you want to do and be whoever you want to be as a woman, as a man. Uh, if you want to live in, in, a, in a marriage relationship, according to these, free to do that. But if you want to live in a de facto, don't get married, but just live with someone, um, then be free to do that. If you want to live with numbers of people, if you want to go through serial relationships, if you want to have hookup culture, if you want to be, be free. That's the sexual revolution we've just lived through. Which therefore means in our current context, diversity is regarded as a very good thing that there are very different kinds of family are, are evidence to people that the revolutions worked. Do, do you know, it's not just now that people exist in nuclear family, mum, dad and the kids in suburbia, but there, there are extended families, there are uh, same-sex families, there are um, uh, couples who move in and out of relationships. It's all diverse, single-parent relationships and, and many today part of that revolution celebrate that as evidence how wonderful it is that there are no taboos no constraints no rules you can be whatever you want to be now and we'd never want to go back to the 1950s because we'd go back to restraint constraint where men were and the women were oppressed and so on and part of this revolution not only has been a pursuit of freedom but it's actually been um, presenting a narrative a story. And the story of the sexual revolution is past is bad, the present is good, and the future will be even better if we continue to pursue and fight for freedom. You know, you've heard that story, haven't you? This is the way all revolutions work, actually. Uh, if you want to get people bought into a revolution, one of the key things to do is to, is to help them see that where we were under an old regime was bad and the only way to get to be better is to escape from that regime at whatever cost so that you actually mobilise and motivate people to keep fighting to get rid of the past, you see. But the narrative is past, bad, oppressive, restrictive, um, hurtful, uh, women were, were uh, controlled and dominated, uh, unable to be who they want, bad present better, future even better if we pursue freedom. There's the cultural context we live in, uh, the great sexual revolution that we've been part of. Now you add, uh, with all of that kind of context, to hear a part of the Bible which is from the past and from religious 
past, to hear that tell you how a relationship ought to function, headship submission, wow, that just hits every button. Do you know what I mean? It's from the past, it's from religion, it's that religion that's oppressive. We're trying to get rid of Christianity, that's the thing that's caused all the harm. And that's from there, and it's actually talking about men and women because a woman is a woman that she has to live a certain way. That's restrictive, we're going back, bad, bad, bad. And so many people hear these kinds of passages and go, yeah, nah. Do you know what I mean? Look, yeah, it would be good for some people, it was good back then, but Paul, it's part of the patriarchy, we're out of there. And we're going to work it out ourselves today. Add to this the horror of abuse, actually, too. And just a warning, I'm going to touch on some very personal topics. I'm going to talk about domestic violence and our practice of sex. Um, Not in very graphic terms, but just a warning. Um, When you add in the fact that families have experienced terrible domestic violence, where men have physically assaulted wives, um, uh, many of us are going, I'm never going back. You know, we're seeing we're seeing what is presented to us as the answer to that violence, and we're going to keep pursuing it. Freedom, 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 equality. But the questions we want to ask together tonight are: Has that revolution been all good? Is the place we're at actually better? Was the past all bad? Is the narrative true? Have we really moved forward? Are we right to react to what the Bible teaches the way we do? There's some big questions to think about together tonight. Um, So there's a bit of culture. We're going to come back to culture again in a moment. But let's now step into the Bible and the misunderstandings that function with the Bible. Uh, Many people, when they uh, uh, hear this kind of stuff, they go, I know the person who quoted these verses and used them to batter and bruise and say, you must submit and... And what you have in that context is evidence of a man particularly, and it's usually men, um, a man particularly who is distorting and twisting the Bible to suit his agenda. And the Bible itself, chase it up later, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, 16, 17, 2 Peter 3, verse 15, 16, 17, itself says that that's exactly what people will do. Uh, People will read the Scriptures and twist them to suit their own agenda. And so these verses have been taken out of context and applied in a brutal, oppressive way, in ways I want to suggest to you from tonight, were never intended in the Bible. But the fact that people twist the Scriptures was warned in the Scriptures that that's what would happen, because humans have a, we have a way with us. We tend to twist things, just as we've twisted the whole topic of freedom, actually. The sexual revolution and the narrative has been a twisting. Uh, we have, you give us a good thing, humans have a way to make it be twisted. And I, I want to suggest to you that there's, it's very important to appreciate this, that um, uh, the Bible has been abused and twisted and it, uh, it, it says that we're not to go this path. Grab your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here is the word of the Bible to men. Love your wife. It's a million miles away from the thought of abusing physical violence against the one you love. To love as Christ loved the church, verse 25. Christ would never have abused the church. 
And here is the Bible's teaching. Men, uh, you, you are to be this kind of, of man uh, and never use a verse of the Scriptures to justify your manipulation, your control, your domination, your abuse. You, you, are, you are taking one verse out of context and offending deeply God and the one that you are married to. The Scriptures condemn violence, they condemn manipulation and control um, and call on us to love. And can I just, uh, um, if you are in a context of a relationship, actually perhaps not even married, but you're f- you are feeling that you're being abused, uh, can I uh, urge you to c- come and speak to someone? Um, it, it may not be me, uh, but we've got women pastors around that you might feel more comfortable. Raise it with someone and get the help you need. It matters that you sort this out and not suffer under the abuse of a man who is misusing the Bible. We will take you seriously if you come. Okay. Sin twists all good things. Um, and so we need to take care as we come to the Bible and look much harder at what's it actually saying. What is the Bible actually saying? That we don't become people who twisted ourselves. And to do that, let me, um, let me take you to part of the Old Testament uh, that Tiff read for us, Proverbs chapter 31. Come back there and let's start looking at what the Bible actually says about uh, relationships between men and women in marriage um, and consider together this. Now, as you do it, uh, I'm going to look there at verse 10 from there on. A wife of noble character who can find she is far worth far more than rubies. So we're talking about a wife, uh, someone of nobility. And I want you to just uh, think for a moment, do, do a quick thought experiment with me. Um, without actually, I mean, we've read it, but just put it out of your mind for the moment. Uh, just, just imagine um, we're about to read what the Bible, the ancient, religious, sacred text of Christians, we're about to read what it says of the perfect wife. Now, given the narrative in our cultural context after the sexual revolution about old is bad, religion's bad, oppressive, restrictive, what would you think most people would imagine the Bible is going to say is the ideal wife? Don't say anything out loud, but just think. What might you imagine, old, bad, religion in the Bible, what might you imagine it would say of... Here's the, here's the description of the, the best wife you can get. What would that woman look like? Think in your mind, which is where you do what you're thinking. <laughs> Let me give you some words to express what I think most often comes up for us as I talk with people who aren't Bible readers. This is the kind of thing they have in their mind about what the Bible would teach. The, the, the ideal wife, if the Bible ever taught on that, it would tell us to have, make sure the woman is covered up. That, that she's at home, that she's silent, subservient, pliable, she's mouse-like, controlled by a powerful husband. I think that's the picture people imagine the Bible would teach. Well, let me show you what the Bible actually says. It's an extraordinary surprise. Let me read to you verse 11. A wife of noble character, her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax, works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. (laughs) My wife brought me some lunch this afternoon and said, I'm coming as a merchant ship to you. (laughs) 
<laughs> she came all the way from the foyer. Um, but she gets up while it is still night. She brings, provides food for her family, portions for her female servants. Now, just notice this. Um, the, the wife that's described here is one that is at work in the home, working with hands, but working with eager hands, not reluctantly, uh, caring for her family, food for the family, portions for even the servants. She is busy in the home. But look at verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Get this, she considers a field and buys it. She has got a property portfolio. And I take it out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. I take it she's bought a pub. And she's now running it. She's planting the wine and she's getting all the wine happening. She's doing all of this outside of the home. She sets about her work, verse 17, vigorously. Her arms are strong for the task. This is no weak woman. She sees that her trading is profitable. She brings ingenuity and cleverness to the task. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff. This is the uh, kind of working things. She opens her arm to the poor. She's generous. When it snows, she has no fear for her household. All of them are clothed in scarlet. She ensures that the family is well looked after, rich and abundantly cared for. Um, she makes coverings for the bed. She clothes it in fine linen and purple. There's uh, a concern about the marriage bed and uh, ensuring that there's love and affection poured out there. Her husband's respected in the city gate. Verse 24, she uh, makes linen garments and sells them. So she is busy at work in the home and out of the home. She's an extraordinary woman. And finally, look at verse 30. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She does all of this, all of her efforts, without a sense of being a career person, seeking advancement. It's not for her own identity that she does these things, to be significant. She's not the career woman trying to fit the kids in. But verse 30, the centre of her life is God. She is centred on him as the, the one she fears. She is not defined by being a wife. She's not defined by being a mother. She's defined by her relationship with God. And I want you to notice a number of things in all of this. She is not subservient. She is not being taken advantage of. She's not being used. And I want you to notice too, verse chapter 31, verse chapter 31, verse 1. This teaching comes from the mother of the king. The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance, his mother taught him. And so the mum of the king, remember this, women, uh, the power of a mother to shape, teach, and instruct young men. The mother teaches the king and says, Don't be the man, verse 3, who chases after after women don't spend your life on drink you need to be sober that you can lead well in verse 8 and 9 that you can speak up for those who. and here's the kind of woman you need to have here's the wife that you ought to pursue a wife who is capable competent and here it is someone who is fully in charge of her own life this woman she considers the field and buys it. It's out of her earnings that she plants the vineyard. 
She's the one who trades and makes a profit. She is a woman fully in charge of her own life. She is not controlled by a man. She is not dominated by the king. She is her own woman. She's devoted to the home and her children and her husband. She's devoted there as a centre of what she's about, but it's driven by her love of the Lord in a way that is her own agency. And I see this. This comes out of the Bible 3,000 years ago in Jewish culture, religious culture. This is not what was meant to be. This is what not the, the narrative didn't say this was the case. But a great surprise, it's true. Um, we have been poisoned by a progressive narrative that keeps making the point that everything in the past was bad to justify all the efforts to make the, future, the present the way it is and to keep pursuing the future. But when you look back and go, the narrative doesn't actually make sense in reality. The past wasn't all bad. You have here in the Bible a picture of a strong, competent, capable, energetic woman. It's an extraordinary thing. Just notice this, actually. It's not that our culture has tried the Bible and found it wanting. It's that the, our culture has never even properly understood the Bible. To try it, to know that it would work. Deeply important thing to appreciate. That narrative, the past is bad, the present is good, both pieces of that narrative are wrong. The bad past wasn't all bad. And the present is not as good as it's made out to be. Let me now talk culture again with you for a moment. People in our world, uh, not Christians actually, are beginning to see the problems with the sexual revolution that we've just gone through. That it is not delivered like we thought it did. And I want to show you uh, a lot of material from a woman called Louise Perry. I think we've got a slide here. Um, so Louise Perry has written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now Louise Perry is not a Christian, um, not, well if she is she's kept it very well hidden. Um, she's not a Christian, she's a, a woman who grew up as it would identify as a feminist, um, worked uh, after study for some time in a rape crisis centre in the U United Kingdom in Britain and uh, through that experience began to see that the narrative that she'd been fed uh, wasn't fitting with the reality that she was experiencing. Um, and, uh, and she makes the point that the sexual revolution of the last 17 year, 70 years has not made the world better. Wow. Hang on, hang on. We're told that you'd never want to go back to the 1950s. It's bad, bad, bad. But she says, now is not better. There are some things that are better. But there's lots of things that are far worse. Um, and actually, she says, the people who have, who have been advantaged by the sexual revolution tend to be, for the most part, men and a few powerful elite women. But the vast majority of women are not better off. Now, why? Why does she make that case? Because freedom, she says, if, we, if the whole revolution was about giving freedom to people, if that was the great value that drove it, then she says freedom doesn't deliver what we hoped it might, equality between the sexes. Because the sexes, and get this, 
because she says the sexes are actually different. I know, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? But she says men and women are not equivalent. And it's a radical thought and it's an extraordinary... She's been um, uh, copying a great deal of flack over it, though lots of people are agreeing with her on it. Uh, she makes a great deal of, of the fact that men and women are not the same and so freedom is not... Because the playing field's not level between men and women, freedom and freedom of sexual expression has advantaged men and some women but not most women. And in fact, it's disadvantaged women and children. Um, now, this is a whole, the whole thought that men and women are different is a very contested academic world thought. And you can imagine why, because if it's proven that biologically men and women are different, then that threatens the whole enterprise that we can create a quality of gender. If you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, it doesn't threaten it because our equality as men and women is not based on being equivalent. It's based on what God has gifted each, us, each of us as image bearers. It's because God says men and women are equal. That's where our equality is grounded. But if you're not a Christian, if you haven't got a biblical worldview, then you need to ground equality in what you do and how you are and what your person is. And so you need to convince the world that men and women are actually the same, could do the same things. The differences are only cultural. But if it's not only cultural then it threatens the whole enterprise. Now, as I say, it's a contested area, this issue of being different. But So what she does is she pays attention to the more obvious differences. And I'm going to take you through some of them. Um, the first difference she makes, pays attention to is the physical differences between men and women. She says she makes, she makes note of the fact that men are bigger and stronger than women. Did you know that? Now, this is on a, this is on a, a generalisation. You need to give, give you a little bit of um, uh, theory here. Uh, this, these are called... Uh, something we threw up a little earlier. This is uh, called bell curve thinking. And uh, the statistics about uh, the strength of a man. Uh, uh, there'll be some men that are weaker than many women, but most men are stronger than most women. That's how bell curves work, right? So you may have a friend who's a girl who is an Amazon. You know, I mean, she just arm wrestles every bloke you know. But I tell you what, there'll be a man here that she can't beat. You see how bell curves work, right? Um, now, let, let me take you through some of this very quickly. Uh, she says, adult women are approximately half as strong as adult men in the upper body, two-thirds as strong in the lower body. On average, men can bench press more mass than women can by a factor of two and a half. And they can punch harder by a similar factor. In hand grip strength... 90% of females produce less force than 95% of males. In other words, almost all women are weaker than almost all men. Any feminist analysis of the power dynamic between men and women has to begin with a recognition of this fact, that men and women are physically different. Uh, men can outrun women, outpunch them. Uh, sex differences are less marked in sports that favour endurance and strength alone rather than strength alone, but they're never less considerable, 10%. Uh, women are only ever able to get to 90% of what a man is able to achieve in elite sport. Um, there are, she says, many people who are pushing the whole notion that physical differences between the sexes are not real, uh, that they're, they're just cultural, and if we work harder, we'll overcome them. But she makes the point, 
that it's biologically built into who we are. When testosterone hits in the middle teenage years of a young man, he suddenly puts on muscle mass, bone bulk, and he becomes much stronger. The, um, she, she makes a point of the, the World Cup winning American soccer team, football team, soccer team, the women's, American women's soccer team that won the World Cup was beaten by under-15 Dallas boys team by five to something or other. It was an just now, that's, that's not to have a go at women. It's to make a very clear point that we are different and we need to pay attention to that. Let me give you some other differences. Differences she draws attention to... Uh, um, well, actually, let me draw attention to one. There's a difference with respect to the sex act between men and women. In the sex act, uh, men, their, their sexual engagement with the woman is outside of their body and they give themselves to the woman. The woman engagement sexually is inside her and she receives it. That profoundly shapes the sexual relationship between men and women. You, you cannot get past that reality. Um, more, the consequences of the sex act. When, when a man and woman have sex, um, uh, if that goes through to conception, the consequences of that act fall entirely on the woman. Of the two who have sex, only one of them gets pregnant. Which one? The woman. She is the only one who can give birth to that child. She carries that child for nine months. Um, I, I've had four kids. I, I could have been surfing and playing golf when, when my kids were all born. I didn't need to be there. But my wife did. When you have sex as a young woman, the risks are all on you. You carry the consequences that will be lifelong. Contraception, isn't that the answer? Contraception is uh, 90% or so. It's, it's, the, um, uh, it's not 100%, which means every time a young woman has sex, casual sex, she is taking a risk that will change her whole life. But the man, he can walk away. The consequences of sex fall entirely on the woman. More, she pays attention to a thing she calls the socio-sexuality between men and women. And there's uh, much research that's been done in this area. And she says that um, on a, on a socio-sexuality scale, which is the scale of interest in casual sex without emotions and intimacy. And on that scale, um, women, uh, if given the choice the vast majority of women would choose long-term intimate partnership sexually, not casual. But the majority of men are able to engage sexually without being emotionally connected at all, and so casual sex for men is far re more readily available and of interest and satisfaction. Now, we have lived through this sexual revolution which, do you remember, is largely about freedom from taboos and restraints to be whatever you want to be, and particularly for women, to be more like men, to engage sexually like men, to have free sex with whoever they like, whenever they like. But the one that gets hurt in that experience is the women, not the men. The women are the ones who 
have to crush something about themselves in the sex act to engage like a man engages, whereas a man can move from woman to woman and not be touched as much by it. The point she is making is that the consequences of the sexual revolution uh, are that women are largely disadvantaged. Men are advantaged. Children are disadvantaged. The whole push to encourage women to be like men and pursue life like men hurts women. And when there's less incentive culturally for a man to um, commit to the woman that he's uh, sired a child with, when there's no cultural expectation that you ought to do that, then men come and go and women are left carrying it. Can I just... (laughs) Um, she has some great advice for young women. If I could just channel her a little bit and say, young women, um, uh, don't buy this lie that casual sex is normal, is, is wonderful, is appropriate. Uh, you will, a part of you will die. Uh, don't, don't imagine that you can go to the pub and meet a wonderful man there, go home with him and be safe. He is two and a half times stronger than you, he can run faster than you, and he is more aggressive than you, and he's only interested in casual sex. You will lose and be at great risk. Um, Friends, the book she writes is an extraordinary indictment on the revolution that we've just gone through. We've attempted to create a quality of sexual freedom, but the field isn't level. And she says it can't ever be. Men are different to women. The present isn't as good as everyone says it is. Throwing off the taboos, which weren't as bad as they were made out to be, has not produced a society that's happier or healthier. Proverbs 31, the biblical picture, is a woman who is fully equal with her husband, fully in charge of her life. And I want you to notice, come with me to Proverbs 31 again. Uh, Come and look there at verse uh, 28. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Now notice that. What does the king do when he finds the woman who is fully in charge of her life proactive, energetic, taking initiative, working in the home, working outside of the home. What does the husband do with a woman like that? He loves it. That's the biblical man. He rejoices. He's not controlling her. He's not dominating her. He's not micromanaging her. He doesn't have the insecurities and fears that would arise in having a woman have her own life. He's not that kind of man. He's a secure, competent, capable man himself. That's the biblical picture of marriage. You know, um, you one day will get married, and uh, some of you have got married recently. It's good to see the formsons around. Um, both men and women will bring sin into marriage. You'll bring your own baggage. You'll bring your hurts and your needs and your fears, and you'll both want the other to give to fulfil your needs, and you want them to fulfil your needs, and there'll be tensions arise. You'll both have insecurities and potential to harm each other. Um, men... Young men, be aware that as you go into a relationship with a woman, if that's what the Lord wills for you, you are the stronger person. 
You need to know that. You have the greatest, greater physical power and so you need to, and, and you are, have a propensity because of testosterone to aggression, you need to pay very close attention to controlling yourself, that you might love your wife well. Listen to the wise words of God who says in 1 Peter 3 that we are to honour our wives as the weaker vessel, to, to take care and not be harsh, because that is our danger, men. Domestic violence is real, and it's real even amongst church people. And it's um, women commit domestic violence, yes, but men far outweigh the numbers. Men do it far more, and they are far more damaging when they do it. Men need great care to love and not abuse. Now, all of this is the context for the passage that causes us most uh, heart concern, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Come with me there and actually let me just pause. Do you want to ask any questions about any of that so far? Is anything sort of bubbling up you want to just throw out? If not, we'll move into Ephesians 5. We're almost there. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, thanks, thanks. so uh, you, what do you do with the fact that um, uh, in, the Bible never talks about intelligence issues, so not regarded as intelligent, but the uh, issue of uh, the testimony of a woman and so on, um, there's more going on there that's worth reflecting, but you need to note that Proverbs 31 sits as a, um, that emerges from within that culture of a beautiful testimony to the, the initiative, competency, uh, self-agency of a woman. That, that thing needs to be borne in mind. Yep. Okay, let's hit Ephesians 5. Um, I want you to notice a couple of word, things first. Verse 25, <clears throat> uh, the words addressed to husbands by the Apostle Paul are radical. Now, you, you, you may not be aware of this, but in the ancient world, around the same time that this was written, there were lots of other philosophers, great thinkers, secular, who were writing words about how husbands and wives ought to relate. And I've read numbers of them, not all of them, but I've read numbers of them. And they all have the tone of, men, control your wife, take charge, be the boss. And women need to be, but they never addressed the women, they talked about women. What I want you to see with the Apostle Paul is how profoundly counterculturally he is, how, how um, he breaks the culture. When he addresses the man, he doesn't say anything about him and his responsibility to control or lead. He says, you love. Your responsibility is to love your wife, just as Christ loved the church. Your responsibility isn't to police her responsibility. This is fundamental. Men... God doesn't call on you to make sure your wife is doing her part. He calls on you to take responsibility for your part, which is love. Love your wife, serve your wife. Seek to strengthen her faith in Christ and lead her into the things of Christ. Um, there's where the Bible never once tells men to rule. Uh, there, is a, there is an authority inherent in the headship role of a man, 
but the Bible never makes much of it. It actually, it actually transforms the way we think about headship in terms of an act of loving leadership service. Um, so men, can I urge you to read Proverbs 31, read Genesis 2 about the equality of men and women, um, read 1 Corinthians 11 that the wife is the glory of man, read 1 Peter 3 that she's our co-heir and if you find yourself chafing in the future about how your wife might be towards you, do some self-diagnosis and interrogation. What's going on for me that I'm finding it difficult? Why am I finding this hard? And talk. Talk with your wife. Share your hopes, thoughts, cares and concerns. And if you can't get through that conversation into a better place, talk to someone else. Get someone involved with you to help it through. Um, now, uh, the word to women, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, let just a couple of thoughts here and uh, we'll, we'll close. What's radical here is that the Bible, Paul actually addresses the wife as an independent agent. He doesn't tell husbands what to do. To, he says to you, woman, that you are under God, a person in your own right, with your own responsibilities, and I'm going to speak to you the Word of God. That is countercultural in the, in the first century. Now, the word there is to submit, but what does the word submit mean? Uh, it does have a sense of yielding to the headship of a husband, but there's so much baggage around the word submit, I'm going to suggest another way to understand, I think, what Paul's talking about here is to change the word. And let me give you the word that I think makes in our cultural context, helps us get a sense of what Paul's meaning here. It's the word entrust. Entrust. Wives, entrust yourself to your husband. Entrust yourself to him. Do you see, it's, it's, there's, a, there's something beautiful about that expression where I give myself to my husband's loving servant leadership. I entrust myself to him. I don't know, I've not met a woman who doesn't want to marry the man that she can do that with. Isn't it interesting? Every woman I speak to goes, I'd love to have a husband that I could entrust myself to. His loving leadership. Um, that's what the Bible is calling you to. Um, you see... Uh, Friends, um, Perry, give me, I'll give you some insights from Perry again. Uh, we're living at a time where we've been pushed down a path, the sexual revolution, into an experiment of men and women and the way we relate, a kind of egalitarianism, a pretense about us being the same, which is, it's never been tried in any other culture. And it's not working very well, except for some, and particularly the young who are not yet married. <laughs> but it won't work long term. Just interestingly, in, um, in the Scandinavian countries, the, um, it's called the Nordic Paradox, where the Scandinavian countries, the Nor um, you know, Norway, these kinds of countries, uh, rank very high on egalitarian, a lack of patriarchy, if you like. And um, uh, what, the, 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 the expectation culturally is that therefore there'd be peace and harmony and less domestic violence. But actually, the reverse is the case. The rates of domestic violence in the countries that rank higher on the egalitarian scale 
are 10% higher than the average for Europe. There's, there's, something, there's something strange going on in the complex system of who we are as men and women. And my final word, therefore, to you is to trust the Bible. Trust God who made you, designed you. Understand what it says correctly. But don't buy into the narrative of the culture around us. It will undo you. Men, love your wives when you get married. Women, last bit of advice from Perry. As you're looking for a potential partner, young women, Perry makes the comment that um, women by, by, in this bell curve uh, tend to be more agreeable and tend to be more empathic. And so women tend to be more concerned for the needs and wants of a man. And so they meet a man who is not you know, the amazing man they hope for, but they have a great sympathy for him and so they're drawn into a relationship and marry him, only to find that it doesn't work. Perry says the best thing to do as a young woman is not... Can I marry this man? But will he be a good father to any children we might have? Will he be a good father to any children I might have? Because that triggers for a woman the empathy for kids and the sympathy and concern for kids. And so you're better able to objectively look at a man and see whether he will be the one to be the good marriage partner for the sake of my children. Very insightful and clever, yes? So young women, bring that measure to your dating. And finally, women and men, entrust yourself to God. Fear Him. Make Him the centre of your life. Not your marriage, not your family, not your job. God, who loves us and has given Himself for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us navigate these waters well. Help us make sense of the culture we're in. Help us be uh, discerning and thoughtful and not drift with the tide. Um, and help us make sense of your word and, and see the truth of it, we ask. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.